It's Thursday, April 16th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. As the country gets ready to reopen the economy, states are already preparing test and trace programs that will help in the effort. Massachusetts, Utah, and North Dakota are among those working on a comprehensive strategy that includes increased testing and contact tracing that will monitor those that are infected and their close contacts. Emma Court, health reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for how technology will play a major role. Next, throughout this pandemic, there are those ready to take advantage of others with fake cures, scams, and price gouging. One huge scam that came to light recently involved a union group in California that was supposed to buy 39 million masks. The only problem? Masks never existed, and the union was duped by a supposed broker in Australia and supplier in Kuwait. Adam Elmarek, investigative reporter at the LA Times, joins us for more. Finally, as 17 million Americans file claims for unemployment, many are having problems completing the process online. For some states, the problem is rooted in crashing websites due to a decades-old coding language known as COBOL that almost no one knows. McKenna Kelly, policy reporter at The Verge, joins us for why some unemployment checks are being held up. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We need to develop a robust system for contact tracing to identify those who may have been exposed to the virus and, of course, to stop further transmission. Joining us now is Emma Court, health reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Emma. Thanks for having me. So as we keep eyeing a way to get back, a way to get the economy reopened, there's a lot of states that are preparing test and trace programs so they can reopen their economies. And basically, I know we've been talking about testing for so long now, but we still need to ramp up the testing and then follow through tracking these cases, seeing where those people that turn out positive, where they were, who they came in contact with, all of this is in an effort to be able to reopen our economies again. Emma, tell us how this works. There's a few states that are kind of on the front lines of trying to think of some next steps in terms of getting beyond sort of the current testing and disease crisis and looking at more preventative approaches to making sure that we tamp down that curve of COVID cases. So a few states that we looked at in our story were Utah, Massachusetts, and North Dakota. And we saw in Utah and Massachusetts in particular, there was a real focus on not just expanding testing capabilities, which as many people may know has been a real problem, not just kind of getting people tested, but getting them tested promptly enough that it matters for them in terms of dictating how they behave in society, right? But also kind of looking at this test and trace model. So once someone gets sick and they've been confirmed to have COVID-19, really making sure that you look at all of the possible ways they could have potentially spread this infection in the community, reaching out to people they were in touch with, And really following up. So if let's say I had contact with an infected person at my grocery store a week ago, I ran into this person and said hi, and they remember that interaction and recount it to someone with this public health department, then following up with me and saying, hey, you may have been in contact with someone who had COVID and following up and saying, how are you feeling? Do you have symptoms? And not just following up that day, but really throughout time to make sure that you're really being comprehensive about your approach saying, you know, you should probably self-isolate as a precaution, things like that. So this is work that is really, really resource intensive. So in Massachusetts, they want to hire about a thousand people. Utah took about 1,200 
state employees and had them go over to kind of local health departments to help out with this work. But, you know, it's possible it could take a lot more people than that. I spoke with someone at Partners in Health, which is a group working with Massachusetts on this initiative. And, you know, the chief medical officer there said she wouldn't be mad if they had 40 or 50,000 people doing this work. And I think there's some really interesting ideas there, too, in terms of unemployment being such a huge problem these days. I think there's some interesting questions about can we get people back to work in a way that also resolves this crisis? I think it's an interesting idea. The other angle Mm -hmm. on this is the technological angle. There's some apps that are sprouting up so you can kind of be tracked on the app. I know some people would have a problem with being tracked in that way, but that's another part of this contact tracing. And I think there's some really interesting applications of technology here. We've seen that happen in other countries as well. What we saw in North Dakota was they took this app that they had been using to sort of you know, it's called the bison tracker and they used it. They were going to their championship football game in Texas and it was a way for fans to kind of track their progress on this long drive over to Texas. And they said, this might be helpful for tracking COVID cases. So it's a way that people can opt into using this app. They can basically track their movements. And then, you know, if they turn out to be sick, they can actually, if they want to use that information in conjunction with the public health officials and, and try to kind of get in touch with people they've maybe potentially been in contact with along their time and things like that. And I always love a good detail about a bison tracking app kind of being repurposed for public health. And reportedly, they had more than 10,000 downloads in the first 36 hours. So, I mean, that's great Mm -hmm. that people want to get in on that, but it is very much an opt-in type of situation when you're working at Even with hiring people to do like the tedious and time-intensive work manually and making phone calls and doing on that, even on that front, it's up to the person individually to follow the rules there on the other side as well. I do think what's interesting about it is we're seeing people feeling like at such odd ends about this crisis, feeling like all they can really do is stay at home, you know, for those who are lucky enough to stay at home. And this provides a way to sort of be actively involved in this public health crisis. I also think it's worth noting that we've seen some of the big tech companies team up pretty recently and say we want to do this kind of work as well. And they may have a bigger reach. I think the effort that they are collaborating on could reach like, I think, a third of the population or something like that. So there are sort of some bigger kind of tools that might be able to be useful in this. Yeah. On that for an Apple and Google announced that they're trying to build software that they can put into the Android and iPhones that would help people track these encounters. And I think even in California, Governor Gavin Newsom said that he wants to incorporate some type of smartphone contact tracing as part of his strategy to lift these statewide stay-at-home orders. So this is going to be something you're going to hear about a little bit more in the coming weeks, just as states and cities are really desperate right now to get things back open and pumping again. So everybody's looking at a lot of different avenues. Antibody testing was another thing that we're hearing a lot about. So these are all different things that we're looking at to try and track this so that people can stay away from hotspots or help avoid creating new hotspots. And I think there are like a few important caveats to this kind of work. So for one, what we're talking about is really preventative strategies that may not translate in the exact same ways to areas that have really known widespread hotspots. So I'm thinking of places like New York may have a different path forward than some places that have been sort of somewhat less hard hit as far as we know, based on the numbers coming out of those places. I think it's also important to consider sort of the fact that testing has been a real bottleneck. And even these ambitious plans coming out of these states, we may not see that 
at least initially and, you know, hopefully in the long run, overcome some of these bottlenecks. So, you know, I talked to the Broad in Massachusetts. They took a lab that had been doing DNA testing work and they repurposed it to do COVID-19 testing kind of in March. And I think what's really interesting, and I talked to the lab director there, is I said, you know, but you guys want to expand so much. You're doing 2,000 tests a day. You want to do 10,000. What's the barrier to getting there? And she said, you know, we don't have enough of these supplies. And she was hopeful that they would, by the way. But I think that's something we've seen for weeks now, for some time now, really be a problem. If you don't have enough swabs to take people's samples, you can't do enough testing. And I think that's a really important challenge that you shouldn't underestimate. Emma Court, health reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. There's every stripe of fraud you could imagine in this crisis. And because of the mass fear, fraudsters have found a ripe environment to try and exploit that and make some money by selling people fake hope. Joining us now is Adam Elmarek, investigative reporter at the LA Times. Thanks for joining us, Adam. Glad to be here. We wanted to talk about scams in this time of coronavirus. I wanted to start off big and then go a little smaller. So the first one that we had been hearing about for some time now was this stockpile of 39 million masks that a California union had claimed to discover and they were going to get them and give them out to their members and healthcare workers and all that. We ended up finding out that that was an elaborate scam. There was reports of delays in delivery of the masks and then everything started to fall apart little by little. And it ended up just being a huge scam that the FBI has gotten involved and there's this investigation now into what's going on. Adam, start us off there. What happened with these 39 million masks? So basically, one of California's healthcare workers unions, SCIU, United Healthcare Workers West, they made this big announcement that was pretty widely covered in the media. They said they had found a gigantic stockpile of 39 million medical grade masks. And it ended up being, though, that there were some red flags. Hospital systems were trying to get their hands on the masks. The union connected them to the alleged supplier. And the masks weren't coming in. Some hospitals asked to inspect this stockpile. The supplier was real dodgy about allowing them to check out these masks in person. So there were some red flags early on. Workers were complaining they weren't getting them. Then the federal government said, we want these masks for FEMA. So they swooped in and tried to seize some of this stockpile. But in the end, they only found that there were no masks. It was all a scam. There's some shadowy Australian broker who's involved that they're investigating as being part of the scam. The supplier is allegedly based in Kuwait, who is part of this scam. So these 39 million medical grade masks never existed. And it was all just one big ray of false hope. The investigation is ongoing. The union itself is not under investigation. And also a businessman from Pittsburgh who was kind of this middleman in this whole deal. He's also not under investigation with this, but they're looking into that broker in Australia and the supplier in Kuwait who were probably the swindlers in all of this. Yeah, the union's not under investigation. It appears that they were just duped by this huge hope that they had to find this stockpile. And it kind of provided a window into the chaotic marketplace for personal protective equipment, the masks and the gowns and all the other equipment healthcare workers rely on. It has been flooded with suspect shady middlemen claiming to have stockpiles of masks and other equipment to sell to government agencies and hospitals. Experts have told me and some hospital officials 
has said that for every hundred offers that they get of this desperately needed equipment, something like 99 of them are bad leads, just phony fraudsters. My understanding was that there was no money traded in this deal, but do we know about how much worth this deal was purportedly worth? Well, the middleman in the United States, as I understand it, was planning to sell them for about three fifty a mask. The union said it was going to be $5 a mask. It's not clear which number is correct, but it would have been at the higher end of $5 a mask. It would have been close to $200 million worth of masks sold to hospitals, state agencies across the United States. That's just amazing. The good thing is that they were able to find it out and really there was no money transferred. I mean, the biggest loss is obviously the PPEs. And then on the smaller scale, the FTC has said that American consumers have fielded about 16,800 complaints of coronavirus-related fraud. It's a total loss of $12.7 million. The median loss for a complaint is about $570. So this is ranging from a bunch of different things, people targeting Medicare recipients, people just calling people out of nowhere saying, hey, we have some tests to sell you. Give us some personal information and we'll get it to you. There's a lot of fraud going around. Not even just that, it's just fake cures, other phony medications, things like that. There's every stripe of fraud you could imagine in this crisis. And because of the mass fear, fraudsters have found a ripe environment to try and exploit that and make some money by selling people fake hope, false cures. There are people running around selling colloidal silver cures, which health experts say does absolutely nothing to cure COVID-19. But you've got, you know, snake oil salesmen all over the country peddling this stuff to people who just really don't know any better, unfortunately. We had a story the other day about a 61-year-old Riverside resident who was duped in a Medicare fraud scheme. She got a random call from someone claiming to represent Medicare, asking for her Medicare information. And as soon as she got it, the person hung up and presumably is going to use that information for some kind of fraud. So it's everywhere. It's a really, really tough state of affairs. Adam Elmerek, investigative reporter at the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Secondly, in our list of volunteers, Judy, not only do we need healthcare workers, but given the legacy systems, we should add a page for cobalt uh, uh, computer skills because that's what we're dealing with uh, uh, in these legacies. Joining us now is McKenna Kelly, policy reporter at The Verge. Thanks for joining us, McKenna. Hey, glad to be here. We're going to continue talking about coronavirus and its effects on the country. One of the interesting things that's happening is that when the country gets stressed like this, you see a lot of the inadequacies with the healthcare side of things, hospitals, the lack of PPE, personal protective equipment, and ventilators. Those cracks start to be exposed. On the economic front and the way states are operating, an interesting thing is happening right now. We have about 17 million Americans that have filed for unemployment, and there's a handful of states that have such outdated systems there where people are just spending hours on the websites trying to get through. In many cases, they can't get through. And a lot of it has to do with this decades-old coding language known as COBOL that some of these states are using, and it's just causing a mess for them and for the people that are trying to file for unemployment. McKenna, tell us a little bit about this coding language COBOL and how the states are using it and what's happening. 
So COBOL is nearly 60 years old. It was developed in the 1950s because a lot of computer manufacturers were creating their own programming languages. So if government or the private sector wanted to use a variety of different manufacturers and different computing systems, it was difficult to manage basic tasks with so many different languages. So in the 50s, the Defense Department worked to create COBOL. And since it was one of the first standardized languages, it grew exponentially over the next couple of years, becoming the most widely used language by the 1970s. So we've seen a lack of investment in updating these systems that are 40, 50 years old. So what does this look like in practicality when people are logging onto the website? Is it just crashing because these systems are so outdated? What's going on? So I tried to talk to as many people as possible about the errors that they were experiencing. The one that I focused on the most and one of the stories that I wrote this week was a man in Colorado who it took him three days of trying to submit his information. He would go into the system, file out everything that the government asked for him. It took him about 30 minutes the first time and click submit and it would say that the system was overloaded. And every 24 hours in the Colorado system it asks you to re-enter that information over again. So he could just be sitting there clicking submit, submit, submit for 24 hours, and then have to fill that all over again. And he did that for three days. So the big question here, who's using this system? You guys said maybe there was about 12 states that are using this. What states might be experiencing some of these problems? So last week, I reached out to every state labor department in the country. And from what I heard back, at least 13 use the language. Now, COBOL is being used in a variety of different capacities. So in one state, I can't remember exactly what it is, but COBOL is paired with Java as they're trying to upgrade the system. So it's functioning in different forms in a variety of different states, but it is a widespread issue that is impacting people all across the country. Also from your reporting, you said that uh, according to Reuters, 43% of banking systems are built on COBOL and 95% of ATM swipes still rely on this language, but they all have kind of dedicated people and they've been working on these things for a long time now. And the Government Accountability Office has issued a bunch of different reports basically saying, guys, we need to get this in order. We need to update these things. And these older systems are costing taxpayers around $337 million a year. And most of it is just towards maintenance. That's one of the biggest issues. And as I was reporting the story, one of the largest problems is that a large majority of the people who know COBOL are growing and meeting retirement age. There just aren't enough people who are fluent in the language that can come back to the workforce and help maintain these systems in times of crisis. During Y2K, we experienced a similar issue when people were terrified that computer systems would rupture when they switched to the new millennium. So we had hordes of COBOL programmers come back. And so now we're 20 years down the line since, and more of those people have grown even older. And when COBOL programmers were on the job in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, code and computer engineering wasn't in academia. People didn't learn how to formalize it and communicate what they were doing. And a lot of them, there wasn't open source networks for people to even grab basic code to incorporate in the system. So it made it harder for newcomers who look to come back and help out to even look at the code and really figure out what's going on there. McKenna Kelly, policy reporter at The Verge. Thank you very much for joining us. Glad to be here. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is your Daily Dive.